I get emails all the time from people who say, there's a church in my community that really cares about social justice. I don't think they actually believe Jesus rose from the dead, but they really care about social justice. Right. And then there's another church that really believes Jesus rose from the dead and believes we should tell everyone about it. And they could care less about the policies in our community that are affecting vulnerable people. Which one do I go to? And I think a lot of young people, they don't want to choose between those two. The better option is to just not go. Welcome to season three of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, hello to all of our Shades of Hope podcast listeners and Happy New Year. Wow, Pastor Jeff, I cannot believe that 2023 is here. I can't believe 2023 happened. It Things <laughs> go so fast at times, it feels like, and then so slow at times, it seems like. And I think part of it's the aging of our skin and hair that reminds us that time just moves very fast these days, it seems like. Well, you speak for yourself because I'm only 43 <laughs> and I might turn 44 in 2023, but it is such a blessing to be in this new year with you. I think this 2022 was our first full year in our Shades of Hope podcast, and yep. it has been both a blessing and a blast. And I want to say yeah. to you personally, Pastor Jeff, that words cannot express how much I appreciate our partnership, our comradeship, as we try to turn around this ship as it relates to social justice. So I want you to know, my brother, I'm so glad to be in this new year with you. Mm, thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation to be a part of your life and ministry as well here in the city. You've been doing it so much longer than I have. And your willingness to slow down a little bit and let me kind of catch up with you and the way that you've mentored me and encouraged me has been a large part of the way in which we've been able to move this thing forward. So thank you for all the work that you continue to do as well. Well, thank you so much. And as a, I should say, older African-American pastor in our great city, I am elated that we have with us today an incredible young lady that you met at a conference and that you've been reading some of her materials. And I would just love for you to introduce this young lady to our audience on today. Well, it's my pleasure. I actually came across Caitlin on a podcast that somebody recommended to me a couple of years ago. Wow. And it took me a little while to get over the hump to listen to it because in my mind's eye, I just saw Bob Tomato. <laughs> and it was just hard for me to get past that. But once I did, I found a fantastic podcast called The Holy Post. And Caitlin is a regular contributor to The Holy Post. Caitlin is an author. She's a speaker. She's a podcaster, like we just said. Her first book is titled The Liturgy of Politics. Wow. Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And we've used that the last couple of years as a resource in leading up to election cycles. And it's been a fantastic gift to the church. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. 
But her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, The New York Times, Christ and Pop Culture, Relevant Magazine, and Sojourner. She has a Master's of Theology in Systematic Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary Mm -hmm. and is currently a doctoral student in political theology at Duke Divinity School. She loves to cook. And I love to cook. I also love to eat, but she loves to cook for crowded kitchens <laughs> and she loves to read. Wow. Um, like I said, she appears regularly on the Holy Post podcast. And we are so excited to have you here this morning. Caitlin, welcome to the Shades of Hope podcast. Yes. Oh, thank you both so much. I'm honored. <laughs> well, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of give those who may not know who you are a little bio about what you're up to and how you got to where you are? Yeah. So I grew up as a military kid all over the United States, moved every couple of years. So I've lived in lots of places and don't really feel like any one place is quite home, except where my mom is. Mm -hmm. That's probably what she would want me to say. And it's (laughs) definitely true. And I have always been in the church. I grew up with two parents who, by the grace of God, both loved Jesus and truly believed the gospel and lived it with their lives. I feel really thankful in a period where I have a lot of peers who are really struggling with you know, kind of a sense of hypocrisy or betrayal from some of their elders in the faith. I feel really lucky that I come from a family where I knew from the time I was very young that my parents truly believed the gospel and I watched them live it out. So I was in church all the time, constantly. My mom worked at the church Mm -hmm. oftentimes wherever we lived and believed from a really young age. I used to kind of feel embarrassed about that. I thought it was helpful to have a story where I had kind of a you know, rebellious past and then came to the faith later. But I'm really thankful now that for all the things that I could be critical of now in some of the churches I grew up in, and I am critical of some of those things, I believed that Jesus loved me and I believed the story of the gospel. And I always knew that it had effects for my life outside of the church walls and went to college. I'd gone to public school my whole life. So I went to a Christian college. I went to Liberty University in Virginia. And I studied history and political science and thought I would go to law school after that. That was the plan. And then because of a very weird series of events that involved kind of hiding from my parents for a while that I wanted to go to seminary, (laughs) I just, I was interning at a church and I felt really strongly that I didn't know what was next, but I knew studying the Bible was. And I was afraid to tell people because I didn't have a plan. I I wasn't like some of my peers. I didn't grow up in a tradition where women were ordained. So I didn't really... Mm -hmm have something to say. I couldn't say, oh, I'm going to go pastor a church or, oh, I'm going to go, you know, overseas or I just knew I'm supposed to keep studying scripture and we'll figure out what comes after that. And so finished college and then went to Dallas Seminary where I really, truly thought, no idea what I'm going to do. And I worked at a church in children's ministry. I worked in young adult ministry with people in their 20s and 30s and pretty quickly in seminary took a real theology class. And I thought, whatever I have to do to just keep doing that (laughs) is what I want to do. And so applied to PhD programs towards the end of my seminary degree and ended up at a place here at Duke that is really perfect in that I get to take some political science courses, take some philosophy classes, as well as theology and Bible, and get to be in a really different environment than the predominantly evangelical schools that I went to for my undergrad and my master's. And that's been a a really great learning experience. And so has the city of Durham, has a lot of people in churches doing kind of political work or social work. And so it's been a good place for me to watch very different traditions than the one that I grew up in and how they have kind of approached some of those questions of faith and politics. Wow. Liberty to Dallas to do is a theological sort of (laughs) journey, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you're able to hold things in tension. And I think in terms of 
this intersection of theology and politics talking about holding things in tension, right? I mean, that's the story. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I was taught very early on that I believed and now I don't believe at all is that you should never talk about politics in church. Mm. Right, right. Because <laughs> we didn't want to hold the tension. <laughs> right. So how did you become interested in that intersection? And like, where was the genesis? And how did you kind of follow that stream? Yeah, well, I should say that I grew up in predominantly white evangelical churches that did kind of avoid talking about politics. If we did talk about it at all, it was about abortion or gay marriage. Probably that was it. And I did have a very strong sense from a young age that to be a Christian was to be a Republican. And I didn't really have exposure to lots of other things that challenged that. And I did have a sense that my faith impacted my life outside of the church, but I hadn't thought much about what that meant in terms of politics. I thought it mostly meant you go on an occasional mission trip, you evangelize to your friends. You know, I was in a public school and I talked about my faith a lot, but I didn't really have a sense of what it meant politically. And then I went to Liberty University and I was there from 2012 to 2016. And so my last two years there were difficult (laughs) years. My first two years, I really, I mean, I didn't know a lot about the moral majority about Jerry Falwell Sr. If I had known about it, I probably would have liked it, but I didn't really know much about it. And then my last two years at Liberty, I mean, it was just constant political coverage. I mean, there was constantly politicians or pundits speaking on campus. There was constantly national media on campus. For those who aren't aware, our president very publicly endorsed Donald Trump very early Mm -hmm. in the election. And I mean, it wasn't even just him. It was like Ted Cruz announced his candidacy from Liberty. I mean, we even had, because the school needed to maintain their tax exempt status, we had Bernie Sanders come and speak. So it's just (laughs) political stuff was everywhere. And it happened, you know, during my last two years of college, my first two years of college, I think I had a very abnormal experience for a Liberty student, which is I was on the debate team. And we had to do tons and tons of research every week to prepare for tournaments that were mostly with schools that were, we had almost no Christian schools that were involved in the kind of debate we did, policy debate. And so we researched a ton and I read a lot of stuff that challenged the way that I grew up, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of, at that period when I was doing debate, questions of race and justice were really becoming more important than they had ever been before in debate. We normally stuck to kind of policy questions that sometimes didn't seem like they would be about race. My freshman year, the topic was about subsidies for renewable energy. Well, there was suddenly all these people saying, well, there's this whole environmental racism thing that we should talk about. You know, where do these plants get built for nuclear energy or for wind power? Whose neighborhoods are they in? And and that was really not stuff I had ever talked about as a kid, not things I had ever thought much about. And I'll never forget, I think it was my freshman or my sophomore year, I was in a debate that was primarily about race. I was frustrated because it was tense and uncomfortable. And I went into the bathroom with one of my friends who is black and I was venting to her because we were close and I felt comfortable with her. And she was far more gracious with me than she had any obligation to be. And I remember saying, I'm just so sick of talking about this. Mm. And she said, so you've had a life where you didn't have to talk about this until now. (laughs) And I thought, oh my gosh, I'd I'd never thought about it like that. And so that was a central part of it, but that extended to other issues of justice and of poverty. And that was two years of just learning a lot, being stretched a lot. And I think in some places being a little overly self-righteous about all the things I had learned, you know, I was the like enlightened white person who had figured out some important (laughs) things. And, and then my last two years of college happened and 
that was really when all of that learning and growing had been happening in a context where I saw the dissonance with what was happening at Liberty, but it wasn't super strong. I had professors that were faithful people asking similar questions and learning in similar ways. And then my second two years, it was just like a smack in the face of, oh, I I have grown and changed a lot, but I'm still reading my Bible and I I'm seeing things here that don't match what's happening from the stage of where we have chapel every week. And I'm seeing things that make me really confused about who to listen to and who to trust and what to believe. And, and honestly, I think that's why I went to seminary was because I just thought, okay, this doesn't feel like a solely political question to me. This feels like a deeply spiritual, deeply theological question. And I need to figure out what resources there are within the Christian tradition for addressing this because I, you know, by the grace of God, Throughout all that very tumultuous time, I never really doubted the existence of God or the love of God or the story of the gospel, mostly because that felt very relevant (laughs) to the things Mm -hmm. I was dealing with. It felt like this is a beautiful story of liberation and of justice, and it it fits the things that I am looking for, and it feels real to me. And the story we tell about sin felt very real in the context I was in. So I didn't doubt that, but suddenly it felt like this political turmoil that many of my peers are feeling, that many churches and pastors are feeling, felt like it wasn't just political, it was deeply spiritual. And so then when I went to seminary, the 2016 election was still happening, my first semester of seminary, and the 2020 election happened while I was in seminary as well. And so I got there and I pretty much from the beginning thought, I think this is kind of what I'm going to spend my life thinking about because I had this visceral experience and I went to seminary and discovered that we all were feeling that. And most of the pastors, most of the people that I was being trained with, many of them to go be pastors in churches, thought, this is horrible. This is awful. It's also not my job to do anything about this. Mm-hmm. And that was the wow. dominant kind of attitude with a lot of my peers. And I just, I had some great mentors in seminary, a couple of professors in particular who said, here are books to read, here's questions to think about, and who really encouraged me to think more deeply about what spiritual formation is going on in this, what theological questions are going on in this. And then when I kind of discovered that there was a whole field, there's a whole robust Christian tradition outside of my own that had thought about all of these questions. I just thought I need to keep studying this forever. Wow. Outstanding. I love the way you parsed or you disconnected this whole aspect of this conversation being political versus theological. I think that is an eye-opener for many that begin to see the light. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit more on that? Because I think that's critical for my white brothers and sisters because oftentimes they logically walk away from the conversation because they don't want to get involved in a political conversation. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yet they're called to be a follower of Jesus. Yes, yeah. One of the things that clarified this for me, I said earlier, Bernie Sanders came and spoke at Liberty while I was a student there. And unsurprisingly, students were not, happy about that yeah, there were some, wow. yeah Can there you, were right. <laughs> gotta be a republican there were protests there were you know people were angry and to his credit you know whatever you think of bernie sanders to his credit not only did he come when he didn't need to he was just extended an invitation he came to a place that would be very hostile to him and he didn't kind of yell at us or preach at us he sat down with our campus pastor instead of speaking And they had a conversation where he said, look, I think we actually share some desires to serve the poor, to help the vulnerable. We might have different ideas about how to do that, but don't we share 
but he basically appealed to, I find really attractive things in the Christian faith. Can we talk about our common ground? And I just remember wow. looking around and people were sitting with their arms crossed and they were angry. I remember so many social media posts about how dare he, you know, appeal to the Christian faith for his, you know, politics. And it made sense. It fit what I would have expected from people. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. might look at that and think that's a political disagreement. They have a political disagreement about how to address the issue of poverty. It was only a few weeks later in my memory that Ann Voskamp, who's a Bible teacher and not in politics at all, doesn't really talk about politics at all. She came and spoke during chapel and she talked about Esther and she talked about however fragile your authority or your power is using it on behalf of people. She kept using the phrase outside the gate, you know, not kind of using your own, even if it's kind of fragile power for security or safety, but using it on behalf of vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. And people were angry. (laughs) People were not happy with what she said. And it was a helpful way for me to realize, okay, there is this political question and people have a certain opinion about how to deal with poverty and what policy should be used for it. But that's not the only thing they learn when they flip on cable news or when they get on social media. They learn a whole story about poverty and wealth, about what kind of creatures humans are, about what is good and bad in the world, about where we're going, what the problem is, what the solution is. And so it didn't just stay in this little political box of here's how I think about the policies Bernie Sanders supports. It moved into this whole way of thinking about humans in the world Mm -hmm. that was truly antithetical to the scriptural witness. And even when someone came and wasn't talking about politics at all, we had been so deeply formed to believe certain things about wealth and poverty that even her very kind of individual church focused appeal was repugnant to many of the people there. And that was helpful for me in realizing, okay, if the people that are being trained with me in seminary are saying, I see that, that's horrible, but that's not my job. They are missing this huge chunk of discipleship that their people are getting, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, and are missing this place where we are being really deeply malformed spiritually and theologically. It's not just It is about emotions and relationships, and I think we miss that a lot of times. Pastors love thinking about, you know, how they're going to preach the right ideas in their sermon and might not be thinking a lot about the heart that's so deeply involved. But even on the level of ideas, we have learned some truly wrong theological ideas about humans and wealth and poverty and about so many other things. I could give examples in that particular context and at churches that I went to when it came to immigration, and I could think of churches in my area now who have learned wrong ideas about all sorts. So, you know, it could cross the political spectrum, but it was clear to me that the more that we said that's a political issue, the more we were discounting deep areas of discipleship that people were getting that were causing detriments in their personal relationships, in their churches, in their beliefs about God and other people. And we couldn't kind of keep using that out of saying this is a political question. It was a deeply theological and spiritual question, too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that terminology using that out. So from your perspective as an incredible emerging change agent around this conversation, how do we begin to deprogram those who don't realize that the narrative they've been fed and downloaded into the system may be antithetical to the walk and the light that Christ wants us to exhibit? Yeah, I mean, part of the tension that I wanted to create in this book that I wrote, The Liturgy of Politics, was we have to be involved in the whole life of the world that is inescapably political. You know, that is part of the story of scripture is the people of God oriented towards the goodness of creation and the life of the whole world. So we don't get to opt out of any of that. But on the other hand, our political participation is dangerous for us. It threatens to teach us wrong stories about the world, 
to orient our hearts towards the wrong things, to make us fearful or hateful of our neighbors. It absolutely is dangerous. And I wanted to articulate that tension well, because I think sometimes people pick one or the other. They say, okay, it's very dangerous, so we should withdraw. We should be in our own little Christian circles, and we shouldn't have anything to do with politics. It's so messy, the power gets involved, and it's just, it's irredeemably bad. Or they say, let's get all in and not pay attention at all to how dangerous it is and just say, let's change the world. That's our goal. And we'll just use whatever tools necessary. And I think we have to hold the tension of those two things. And I am young. I wrote that book when I was, I think, 24, 25. Amazing. I was not trying to say here as this young person is the answer to all of our, you know, political and spiritual problems. What I try to do is say, I have just spent the last few years in seminary seriously studying how within the history of the global church, we have relied on certain practices, certain spiritual disciplines, certain ways of corporately worshiping that have formed in us better ideas about who our community is, who our identity is, and what the story of redemption in the world looks like. And so I think part of our problem when we feel this tension, and I talk to pastors all the time who are going, my people are being discipled by someone else and I don't know how to address it. I think the temptation though is to say, we've got to reinvent the wheel. This is a problem no Christian has ever faced before. And we have (laughs) to figure out some new program or strategy or brilliant idea that will fix everything. And most of the time when I talk to pastors, this happens especially every election season. So I just did this a bunch with the midterms. Pastors will be like, could you come and give a sermon or do like a weekday event or something that will fix what's wrong in our church? (laughs) And I cannot do that. Absolutely not. Um, But what I can do, what I often feel like I'm doing more of, I can come and preach a sermon or I can come and do an event. I think I have some valuable things to offer. But what I have found I think is actually more valuable is how I talk to that pastor about the really slow work of saying, let's examine, let's do an audit of our practices together as a church and what practices our people are involved in and say, are there ways that we may not have intended to just reinforce the stories the world tells us, whether that's a story of my individual significance being the most important thing, you know, in contrast to my community and maybe how we do communion reinforces that individual. Have we asked that question before? Maybe the way we talk about baptism, it reinforces this very individual way of thinking about things rather than communal. What kinds of rhythms are our people in or are we in together about our media consumption? Mm -hmm. Or how are we talking about spiritual disciplines with our people? Are we talking about them as individual ways to get closer to God? Or are we talking about them as ways to to be oriented towards the life of the world? And, And doing that kind of work that I don't think changing someone's spiritual discipline or changing how we talk about baptism or changing how we do communion will in two weeks fix the problems in our churches. But I think if we want to really, as you described, Dr. Moore, as you talk about like deprogramming what those stories in people's minds, those stories were built through long hours of consuming media and of interactions with people and of social media. We aren't going to deprogram them by giving the best sermon ever that describes everything perfectly, we are going to deprogram them by the slow work of saying in our community, these are the ways we talk about each other. These are the ways we talk about spiritual disciplines. These are the regular practices and habits that we are in that involve our whole self, involve our bodies, involve our emotions, involve our relationships. And we, every once in a while, check in on like, are the practices we're doing good or have they accidentally just reinforced the stories of the world? And that's another reason why I tried in the book to not, have a certain program or a specific answer because it will depend on the context and the person and the tradition you're in and the city that you live in and 
But within that, could some of our leaders be thinking about not just what ideas are wrong, which is important, but also what habits are we in and what emotions are at the root of the things that we're seeing play out politically? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing they caught me in your title. Uh, read that title for me again, Pastor Jeff. The Liturgy of Politics, It's Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. That latter part. Mm-hmm. Spiritual formation, not for the sake of myself That's right. yeah. or my denomination, but for the sake of my neighbor, which goes to that fundamental question, who is my neighbor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Pastor, just go ahead. <laughs> I, I kind of wish you weren't here so I could just pop the kid in my- <laughs> I, I can leave. I've got Bray's short ribs going at home. I mean, I can, I can go. This is amazing stuff. Go ahead. Well, I think what we're getting for our listeners, so we have an audience that is African-American or people of color and white folks. What we just got was a fairly deep dive into the behind-the-curtain formation strategy of white evangelicalism. Yeah. What Caitlin is expressing through her book especially is putting back together something that in the african-american tradition was never separated true and so i think it'd be interesting pastor more to just say you know when you hear her speaking about this sort of reimagining reorienting like what we've talked about re-discipling the white church you know we're trying to undo or redo something that in your tradition was never separated exactly Yeah, community is who we are. Our neighbor is how we demonstrate our faith because we had to lean on each other because of the struggle and because of the greater narrative, or I should say the larger narrative Mm -hmm. of America, Mm -hmm. that we are somehow in the caste system. Mm -hmm. Isabella Wickerson writes writes this book called Caste, Mm -hmm. and she talks about that element that whether we want to realize it or not, America has built this system whereby, as Caitlin alluded to, whereby someone like herself— if you talk against the the systemic racism, it's as if now we are trying to discriminate against white people. Mm-hmm. And that's how they've kind of formulated this narrative, the fight against really dealing and sitting down and talking with someone who may not look like you about how they feel about what they're living each and every day. So you're right. Hearing this from a young lady and how the light has come on in her life and how I just believe God's going to use her books and her conversations, her podcast, and everything he does through her, it's so needed. And I think there are a lot of young people ready and have the potential to hear her story and to be encouraged by Caitlin. Thank you. One of the things that we grew up in, and by we, Caitlin, we grew up in this sort of the same tradition. Mm-hmm. The way you describe it, that was the clothes that I wore. Bible, yeah. you know, sword drills, and like yep, the Bible yep. was the most <laughs> important thing. And our love of our love for the Bible, I yep. think, sometimes got in the way of us actually being able to let the Bible speak to us. Yes. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you say this directly in the book, but you raised four gospel, I would say false gospel understandings of of what's going on in scripture. And one of those that you surface is the gospel of white supremacy. And Mm -hmm. because our podcast is sort of that intersection of race and the church, you say this, there is one gospel that is simultaneously pervasive in the white American church and most firmly denied by it, the gospel of white supremacy. 
I'm going to say that one more time because Pastor yeah. Moore is going to give me an amen. There's one gospel. <laughs> he's going to give you an amen. There's one gospel that is simultaneously pervasive in the white American church and mm-hmm. most firmly denied by it, the gospel of white supremacy. Mm. Amen. Yeah, there you go. And just unpack that a little bit for us. How do you define white supremacy and how does that false gospel affect our formation? Yeah. So like you said, I described these four false gospels. The first three are ones that I don't think we talk about them very much, but they're more Mm -hmm. comfortable for people to hear. You know, the idea that we prioritize physical security, that we prioritize material prosperity, that we prioritize patriotism. We've talked about that a lot in a lot of churches recently. And I can get further most of the time in a conversation with someone on those because they can recognize, Mm -hmm. yeah, actually in my church, we did really prioritize some of those things. When it comes to white supremacy, it's a lot harder, in part because, as you read, we want to really firmly deny that, and in part because it's easier for me to pull from a sermon a line that sounds like the gospel of security or the gospel of prosperity or the gospel of patriotism than it is to pull a single line from a sermon that sounds like the gospel of white supremacy. We don't put any of that in our doctrinal statements. We're not going to preach about that, and yet I think Part of the reason it's so pervasive is that it isn't explicitly taught. That's not something that you're going to just hear and then be able to kind of logically say, well, that doesn't sound right. I don't believe that. But most of us in America who are white grew up in white churches that were, you know, pretty exclusively white, if not entirely white. And so our whole understanding, especially of our faith, and this is why I I included it in that list of four gospels, was to say, A lot of us have learned in the last few years, especially, especially a lot of young people have learned, wow, my education was pretty white. I read mostly white authors and I learned to view the world in that framework. My understanding of American history was very flawed. You know, the right characters were not upheld as heroes. All of that was messed up. Absolutely. What we haven't talked about a lot of times in churches is not only was our way of reading the Bible conditioned by mostly learning from white pastors and white authors and white theologians, But our understanding of the practice of the Christian faith was conditioned by white pastors and white authors and white theologians. And so it was really hard to overcome the kind of lenses that we bring when we read scripture, when we read a story about immigration or refugees in the Old Testament, when we hear talk about foreigners and widows, we read that with a lens that assumes Mm -hmm. certain things. Right. The same is true of the story of the early church in Acts. We're not thinking about racial or ethnic differences. We're not thinking about even sometimes class differences. We're not reading into that. We're reading into it the way that most of the white pastors and theologians we read talked about it, which is people are different from us usually means like we prefer different things in pop culture or we like have different (laughs) life experiences, not some of these really deep divisions that were present in the early church and addressed by the authors of scripture. And so we read scripture without that kind of lens. But then I also, and this is not something I was thinking about when I wrote the book, I now am living in a city that has much more progressive churches and much more diverse place, very segregated. Durham is an incredibly segregated city, but have had exposure to very different religious traditions here. And what I've learned from a lot of kind of white progressive folks at Duke is that they still have this sense of when they think Christian, when they think evangelical, they think white churches. And they have been sometimes really 
disrupted by realizing the very rich tradition of black churches in Durham doing political and social work. And they come here really ready to fight for, you know, housing access and fight for, you know, initiatives to reduce poverty and to have criminal justice reform. And then they're really shocked when the local community organizing group says, great, we're going to meet all the candidates for the local judges and the sheriff at this black church that's down the street from you. Like that meeting is mm. happening in this church. And they, it's really disruptive to them because they they're, out, yeah, they totally <laughs> freak out. Some of them were like kind of upset about it. And it's their whole concept of what church wow. is, what is a white evangelical church that didn't have that kind of deep connection to that work in the city to where most of the white churches now in Durham are doing the work of trying to figure out how to do that. But again, right. fall into the pitfall of saying, we have to reinvent the wheel. We have to figure out for ourselves for the first time ever how to be yep. politically involved in our city instead of, and some of them are doing this second better work because they recognize what I've just said. Uh, instead, they want to partner with churches that have this incredible rich history of doing that already and and then have their own challenges with that of figuring out how to partner well, how to examine their own biases and how not to do more harm than good when they try and do that partnership work. But it's interesting that even people who are very critical of the church can have this pretty exclusively white way of thinking about what traditions are constitutive of the church and what beliefs does the church typically have. It pretty much is conditioned by those experiences that we've had, and and that prevents us from working well together. That DNA is strong. Yeah. It really is. That DNA of people instinctively thinking and have been conditioned to believe that they are at a higher level or are more important than others, that even those that are willing to start this conversation sometimes comes at it from a transactional point of view when we're really trying to get to a level of transformation Mm. and not just transactional, not, you know. And so transformation does require more skin in the game. It really does. And when you speak of that hermeneutic, that exegesis of scripture, I've said before that have you ever thought about why Naomi did not want Ruth to come with her to Mm. Jerusalem? I think part of it was because she wasn't sure that her people yeah. would accept this Moabite woman. Yep. Matter of fact, as the scripture is written, they call her the Moabites. My point is that looking at scripture through those lenses, oftentimes white pastors wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, They may not even see it like that. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's like yeah. we don't yeah. even have a pole, right? Right, you don't have a pole. With. There you go. We, we don't have you, you don't. Yes, you don't have that lens. And that's what one of my questions is for you, Caitlin, is like, as you have been expanding your theological aperture, yeah. how has reading more widely, it being exposed yeah. to more voices, how has that yeah. helped you in this journey? Not just your academic journey, but you're also your, just your faith journey. Yeah, it's funny. One of the things I came to Duke to study, was I came here to do political theology But the other kind of part of my degree is is in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. And I really wanted to figure out especially how different people who are doing political theology have used the Old Testament prophets. That was kind of my Mm. my question I was interested in was how is it that, you know, Augustine, really influential theologian for me, uses a passage like Jeremiah 29 about, you know, plant gardens and build houses and seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I brought you as a whole model for thinking about the dual authorities in Christian life, the rule of God over the people of God, but also earthly rule. And how do you work that question out? 
how he can have a really positive account of what's happening there. And a real, I mean, as a pastor, he marshaled a bunch of resources in his church to free slaves. He wrote letters to government officials to try and prevent people from being executed. I mean, he was involved politically and had this account of the prophets that made sense of that. And then you have someone like Calvin, who, you know, way later, but in a similarly very tumultuous political and religious time period, looks at Jeremiah 29 and says, I think the lesson here is obey government authorities under any circumstances, no exceptions, just do it. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a not very detailed account of what he says, but a very mm-hmm. different account of what's happening in Jeremiah. And so I just thought, how do we make sense of what we do when we come to scripture for political reasons? We're looking to construct a political theology. And the prophets have played such a significant role in that. And I wrote a whole proposal for a different program that I didn't end up doing. I you know, got into Duke and was excited to come here that really didn't account for the black church's, you know, use of the prophets. I really wasn't thinking about that at all. And then the first paper that I wrote here for a political theology class, I just read every single thing James Cone has ever written and just Mm -hmm. read it chronologically. And then thought when I finish reading it, I'll figure out what I want to say. And the thing that was so unexpected and strange to me was that I had spent all this time in seminary reading all these people, trying to figure out how to read scripture in a way that it wasn't just a historical document and it wasn't just, you know, a compendium of theological truths, but it was alive. And how do you read, you know, so that there's more allegorical readings, more spiritual readings, more theological readings. How do you make the text actually address the moral and political issues of the day? All these white theologians like really trying to figure out how do we do this well? Mm-hmm. And then I read Cone and he was talking about his church in Arkansas and the way he described it in an early one of these books. He does it a couple of times. He says, the way that we sang and read and preached scripture, I believed Moses would walk in the door. I believed Jesus could just walk <laughs> in the door. It felt like it, it was real in a way that it just wasn't for a lot of these other theologians. Mm-hmm. And so my right. advisor just told me, I think you should have him under your belt. I think you should just read him. I had read The Cross and the Lynching Tree as a seminary student and it had been very moving to me. But I wasn't yeah. putting him in the category of he would help me figure out biblical interpretation. I was thinking, mm-hmm. what's the list of theologians that in the past at Duke, we have kind of seen as the important guys that you got to learn. And I do mean guys, a bunch mm-hmm. of white okay. men. Here are the people mm-hmm. we have to learn. I wasn't thinking about him in terms of that. And I definitely wasn't thinking that he would come to conclusions that some of these other people were really trying to figure out how do we get to those conclusions? I can't really work it out theologically. And his account of his church and his account of the way that within that community, there was both experience of suffering and real communal worship that just those were the right conditions for reading this well, that that was how he got to these conclusions that these other theologians were really struggling to get to. And so that has shaped a lot of my interest moving forward has been not only are there tons of these theologians talking about certain ways of reading scripture and completely ignore it. They go back to the patristics, which is great, Mm -hmm. but they completely miss this whole tradition in their own country, not very long ago that has all these incredible resources, but it's also really shaped kind of my interest in not only thinking about hermeneutical rules or like, what is the method we have? I think those are important questions to ask, but it really has shaped my interest in saying, what are the communal and worship conditions under which you can read scripture Mm. in the right way? Because the way that Cone often describes it is not, here are the rules. He sometimes does. He talks about the right method and hermeneutics. But at the end of the day, a lot of what he says is, he references constantly the church that I grew up in Arkansas. Like, this is how I learned how to read the Bible well. And I want us to think more in terms of those questions too, of not just what are the right rules for reading the Bible, but am I in the right context? Am I worshiping well with other people? Am I in a diverse community? Am I listening to people who are different from me? Am I 
just in a spiritual sense, in the right conditions to read this well, to see mm. Moses walk in the door or Jesus walk in the door and change how I actually am living my life. Wow. Give us a couple of those James Cone resources. I know one is Black Theology. Yeah, I tell people all the time to read The Cross and the Lynching Tree early. I just think it's accessible and it's yep. it has less of the theological details. But I also think God of the Oppressed and Black Theology and Black Power both were huge okay. for kind of the Again, that kind of framework for thinking about the questions that I wanted to think about. Great. Thank you for that, for our listeners. The thing I wanted to just tag onto that list of like ways of thinking about reading, I think just you're describing a posture of approaching theology as well, right? Yeah. You're, you're describing a way that says, first of all, I understand my location and what that means. Right. So I've investigated the social place that I come from. And I know that that matters when I come into the space. Yeah. But I also recognize that everybody else who's coming into the space as well matters. And I think that's what I didn't grow up thinking. I grew up thinking that we figured it out. And and so everybody else needs to just be converted to our way. (laughs) And like, we got it. And it wasn't until, you know, folks like Pastor Moore who helped me see like, oh, wait a second, there are faithful Christian pastors and theologians who are not like me at all, who have a whole tradition and way of thinking about this. And it always takes me back to that Paul's passage that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God Mm. is revealed to the world. And it just feels like that posture that you're talking about is a posture of humility and curiosity, which we talk about a lot. You mean through the white church, the manifold wisdom? (laughs) No. (laughs) Actually, we need to shut down our witness right now and like get our house together before we open it back up. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, as Caitlin talked about, you know, just putting James Cone on the same level Mm -hmm. as some of these other uh, theologians that the evangelical world lifts up. I think it takes a level of humility to get there. And maybe youth. (laughs) Youth may be a part of that too, but I just think that's so awesome that you would raise up an African-American theologian and say, it's this person that's kind of helped me really develop more of a hermeneutical view or lens of Scripture. I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And like you said, Jeff, I really think it's where do you see yourself in the Mm -hmm. text most naturally? It's amazing to me. I mean, I used to work in children's ministry and I have all of the respect for people who write curriculum for that because it is hard to figure out how to teach (laughs) children well. But one thing I thought that they never really thought very much about is how are we telling the story in terms of who are we teaching these kids to see themselves in this story? Where are they supposed to see themselves in the story? And most of the time it's like the hero. Like I'm the good guy and I, if I, if it's David and Goliath, I am David. And that is the person. And and the lesson is trust God to defeat your enemy. You know, some version of like, it's oriented towards where you see yourself and what I think is so difficult for most people, most white people in churches to do is to see themselves, first of all, to sometimes see themselves as the bad guy, to be like, where am I in the Pharisee that Jesus is condemning? Or where am I in Pharaoh? Or where am I in the, in a lot of the, I mean, the Old Testament is full of people that we're supposed to see as heroes and yet are deeply flawed. Are we seeing ourselves in the flaws, you know, the stories that are told about their great sins, or do we just see ourselves in the stories where they really do the great thing? And what Cohen so often does is not say, here are the rules for how to interpret this passage. He says, It was natural in my church for us to look at scripture and see ourselves in the Exodus, see ourselves as the beleaguered church very early on, you know, to see ourselves in a position where we were dependent upon God's grace and crying out for liberation. And I think some people have tried to say to white people in churches, 
do that. See yourselves in this point. And that's not, as you said, Jeff, it's like you first have to do the work of evaluating where you are and how you are formed by your context. It, one of my favorite stories in scripture is the prophet Huldah, partially because what she does is not receive this divine revelation from God. She's just like, here's the word of the Lord from the sky. What she does is they find the law. They've been ignoring it. Josiah is a good king and says, let's figure out how to interpret the law. And what Huldah does is she interprets the context that she's in. She sees the sad state of Israel. She knows how they're sinning. And then she looks to the law and says, because of what I know about where we are, I can tell you what is coming because I now can interpret scripture better. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us want to be prophetic. That's part of my interest in the prophets is like, I want to be the angry one on social media that's like telling everyone how it is. And what Holda does is not that. What Holda does is reads the world correctly and reads the word correctly. And we don't know how to do both of those things very well. We tend to be really good at one or the other. Well, I had a hard time finding myself in the scriptures because they got spiritualized. Everything got spiritualized. And so it's like, it was always about sin. It was always about the internalized sin. And it never really was about the conditions that we lived in, which I think is another reason why we're trying to put something back together or fill something out that was greatly reduced. It's like we have this little piece of the gospel and it's so big. And that's why when we start to open up the aperture for our theological voices, we start to see how big this gospel actually yeah. is. Like, it's huge. Yeah. We always mm. thought we had this high view of scripture. And I was like, yeah. well, we have a really small view. If it's high, <laughs> it's it's tiny. And so just like being able to open that up feels, it, I mean, again, just yeah. when I listen to Pastor Moore preach, I'm like, oh my gosh, how I, I would have never seen that in a million years. Mm. We have an African-American woman that preaches. She preached on yeah. Sunday. I was like, I, I could have never seen that. In a million years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. As I hear both of you talk, and now you're taking me back. I'm having some thinkings about sitting in my church as a little boy. Hmm. I didn't learn so much about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ until I met a white teacher in college. Mm-hmm. My church talked more about the struggle mm-hmm. and how scripture helped you through the struggle, how it helped you with community. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to college and this white female was teaching about this personal relationship with Jesus Christ was something I had to add and Mm. understand more deeply. But the Bible had always been a journey of survival. Mm. And God loves me in spite of my plight and how I was to navigate life. And that personal relationship with Jesus Christ is something that I had to grapple with once I really got in front of some white teachers. That's mm. really amazing that now mm. I think about it. Yeah. Well, and this is a whole different podcast now because now what we're talking about is an ecclesiology. <laughs> yes. You yeah. were saved in a community, right? You were right. born into a salvation community. Yes. Because there was a way of thinking about the world and about what God was doing in the world where you were safe when you got to church. <laughs> Absolutely. Whereas we think about it completely differently. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what Pastor Moore is going to say at some point. <laughs> when can we have you back? Please let me say it. Please let me say it. Yeah, I know this it's coming. is extraordinary. So one of the things that we are also interested in is just the state of the church right now. And Pastor Moore said something about just that younger generation. Like there's mm-hmm. always that renewal coming through the younger generation and it always has to push against. And I mean, we planted our church out of that 25 years ago. We were like, we're going to go do it the right way. And you know, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And it generationally happens, but it feels different 
this time, it feels like the shift yeah. that's underway is a different kind of shift. Do you feel that? And how yeah. do you name that? Yeah. Interestingly, last year I was talking to this professor who teaches Christian ethics for the undergrads at Duke. So it's not in the divinity school. It's not really confessional. It's just, here's a religion class that they can take. And he gave them like a little survey at the start of class that asked them a bunch of background questions about themselves. A very smart thing to do for a class dealing with, you know, difficult, intimate kind of things. And he told me one of the questions he asked is, are you religious and of what kind? And this is a school in the South. And it still is true that most of the people, good majority said, yes, I'm religious. And a good majority said, I'm a Christian. And whether that is significant in their life or not, or what they actually believe, I don't know. But a majority of them identified as Christian. Later down in the survey, he asked them how deeply they cared about social justice issues. Mm -hmm. Off the charts, all of them care so much. High, you know, 10 out of 10 care about social justice. Later question was, do you think that your religious background, your religious beliefs have anything to do with your commitment to social justice? And it was like zero, one. It was Whoa, so right. small. And it's not totally surprising. I think it's it's just interesting to see the numbers of it, of, of a lot of people sort of generally define themselves as Christian. I think that will continue to change, but especially in the South, it's still pretty true. And a lot of these young people care deeply about social justice, and they don't think that has anything to do with their faith. Mm -hmm. And so- Part of what I often see in churches is, you know, young people feel like maybe I'm still kind of going along with this because it's the way that I grew up. And some of them obviously very deeply believe this, but some of them just kind of still going along with it. And yet most of our churches, both a lot of white churches have really struggled to either they've kind of added in social justice as in mm -hmm. a like, let's be concerned about the thing young people are concerned about. It's the same tactic as like, let's have good coffee and like, let's have a light show or let's, have, you know, let's, let's add social justice <laughs> because drummers. yes, yes. Because that's what the young people want mm -hmm. without it being fully integrated into like, this is a part of our faith that it mm -hmm. stems from theological convictions and it's motivated by the way we're spiritually formed in our community, but also have, as we've said, like not connected that at all with, other traditions in the U.S. and around the world where that hasn't been something that needed to be added in. It's always right. been a part of that tradition. And I think we've treated social justice as just like another thing we need to add on instead of really deeply a part of what our yeah. church is. I mean, there are plenty of churches in my city that are pretty progressive theologically mm -hmm. who are very in on social justice, and they really care about that. And a lot of them are very close to Duke's campus. Like undergrads could walk from their dorm to mm -hmm. this church, and they don't. Well, overwhelmingly, they do not. And I think that's the problem on the other end, which is to say some of these, again, primarily white progressive churches have said, yeah, we really care about social justice. That is like the whole of what we do. Mm -hmm. And if a young person at Duke wants to get involved in social justice, they have tons of opportunities on that's campus. Right. They have clubs they can join. They have people that would love to help them. They could major in social work. They could... But there's nothing really rooted to a deep faith commitment in some yes. of those churches. And I, I feel like we've split, we've polarized so much to where a lot of the young people in colleges, not in college, in high school, I get emails all the time from people who say, there's a church in my community that really cares about social justice. I don't think they actually believe Jesus rose from the dead, <laughs> but they really care about social justice. That's right. And then there's another church that really believes Jesus rose from the dead and believes we should tell everyone about it. And they could care less about the That's policies right. in our community that are affecting vulnerable people. Which one do I go to? And I think that's a personal, I, I think you could do good work in either of those churches to push them in some good ways. And wherever you are called, that your community confirms that you are listening to the Holy Spirit, you should make a good decision. I can't tell you what to do on that. But I do think that that polarization has affected it because a lot of young people, they don't want to choose between those two. The better option right. is to just not go. That's right.
Wow. I do see that, again, the cross centers us. If we can have a good theology of the cross, yeah. it brings in both that personal reality that God has saved a wretch like me that we sing yeah. and the corporate reality that he's saving the cosmos. And both of those things, the, I, we always talk about the two beams of the cross. You know, you mm-hmm. have that vertical and you have that horizontal. You have to have them both or you don't have a cross. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's what Jesus came to give us. So are you hopeful as you think about church future? Like as you think about your next 25, 35, 45 years of work, you're in the academy, but you're mm-hmm. also, I think you attend a local church there in yeah. Durham. Yeah. yeah. So how are you feeling about it? The trajectory? I will say I belong to a church in Durham that believes Jesus raised from the dead and also thinks that the way we live in our community deeply matters. And I have been really, truly blessed. I mean, I came out of a really rough church situation in Dallas, really painful and difficult because of some of the things we've talked about. And coming here and just immediately finding a place that is, I think, a rare, rare place has been a gift to me. And so I teach Sunday school with little kids and I love being a part of that whole community. It's a wonderful place. And honestly, that church gives me a lot of hope because it's a church that's in a mainline denomination and yet is pretty conservative for its place within that denomination and holds a lot of tensions. I mean, has a lot of different people with different concerns that want it to do different things and has a group of faithful people there that are trying to do really well and have some deep partnerships with some historically black churches in our community that are trying to have a posture of humility and learning from them. And I'm hopeful because of this community that I'm in. I'm also hopeful because as like cliche as it sounds, like I just, I believe the Holy Spirit is working where the Holy Spirit will work. And it is not in the places that I had seen it growing up. And that is to be expected. (laughs) Like The idea that the Holy Spirit would be animating communities in the places that I am not looking and working in ways that I'm not expecting fits perfectly with the way the Holy Spirit is described in scripture. And so some of that is just hope in the sense of of course, it's not happening where I would think it would happen. And so if I'm discouraged that it's not happening where I think it would happen, that should make sense to me. And one of the places I think the Holy Spirit is working in unexpected places that I see it a lot is especially among women in churches that historically have not had a lot of opportunities for leadership for them. The amount of women I know who are committed to staying in places where it has been hard for them because they truly believe the gospel and they want to be faithful to the call God has given them when they have every reason to leave, to go to a church that has more opportunities, but that they don't align with theologically or that they don't feel called to, I have a lot of hope because I see, and this is true in all sorts of other ways too, but I see it mostly with with women. When there are people that are willing to do hard work in hard places because they actually just believe the gospel is true and are motivated by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, that I mean, I could see a church with like constantly growing numbers and that would not make me hopeful in the way that watching people do what they really believe God has called them to do in hard places would give me hope for. Mm, Love Mm. that. Well, Caitlin, thank you for your time. We want to get you out of here since you have multiple podcast engagements today. We are glad that we were number one. Though. Are, were we number one? Thank you were, yes. Okay, yeah. good. We were glad we were number one. The book is The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. That was book number one. Book number two is coming out in this new year. Yes, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it is coming out in August of this year. It is called The Ballot and the Bible, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American History and Where We Go From Here. 
And mm. so each chapter is a short story of some time in American history where scripture has been used for a political purpose, whether as a positive example or a negative example, mm. and then kind of evaluating what we can learn for how we could have better conversations about politics rooted in scripture, because I think that still is an area of great common ground for many of us who have very different political beliefs. We say we care about scripture informing our politics. And I think instead of just, again, giving a list of rules or a method, I want instead to say, could we look at our past and see ways that scripture has been abused and learn how to not repeat those mistakes? And can we see ways that it has been used really positively and learn from those? And my advisor at Duke read an early draft of it pretty recently. And he said, do you realize that basically this book is saying, listen to the black church? And I was like, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't really realized that it was doing that. But it, most of the positive examples of scripture deeply informing good political work in the world has been from the witness of the black church. And many of the examples of great abuse have been from white churches that said, as you said, Jeff, that said they really cared about scripture and yet twisted it in pursuit of policies that really only protected them and gave them more power. And I want us to be able to have that conversation honestly. And I think one of the ways we can do it is by looking at examples that we still feel some connection to, where, you know, for Americans, they feel some connection to American history, and yet far enough back in our history that maybe we could lower the temperature of the conversation we're having. If I jump right in talking about Trump, or if I jump right in with like recent right. protests for racial justice, or people's walls come up and the temperature is so high, I want to step yeah. back and say, are we comfortable with the way that loyalist priests used Romans 13 during the American Revolution? Mm -hmm. If we're not, what does that mean for how we talk about protests today? What does that mean for how we talk about immigration and the you know real abuse of children at the border that we've covered up under the guise of Romans 13? Are we comfortable with that? You know, so that was the goal to say, could we look at some of these past examples with a little bit of distance from our own lives, but then also take those lessons we've learned into contemporary questions? Yeah, great. Caitlin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Caitlin. What a blessing. And I do pray and hope the Holy Spirit put on in your heart to talk with us again in 2023 of our podcast. Thank you. When the new book comes out, if we can get on your schedule, we'd love it. That'd be great. Where can we follow you? Social media? Do you have a website? I do, CaitlinChess.com, and I have some resources on there for, I talked about kind of doing an audit of your media consumption practices or your kind of election coverage consumption. I've got mm. some of that stuff mm. on there. Great. I'll put all that in the show notes. The book, again, is The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. Caitlin Chess is the author. Follow her on social media and catch her on The Holy Post. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your ministry, the work that you're doing. Blessings on all of it. And again, thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. That's Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children. <laughs>